Jesus. Amen. I went to Drake University, and one of the religious professors there would begin his class each year by telling people that he was a Christian, telling people that he uh, believed in, in Jesus, but then making it clear in no uncertain terms that Jesus did not rise from the dead. Jesus didn't, did not physically rise from the dead. How would you respond to a claim like that? Someone educated, someone who's probably read, read the Bible, studied far more than you have. How do you think you'd respond? And one of the many verses that pops into my mind is Romans 10, 9. This is a famous gospel verse. And Paul says there, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just God, but owner of your life. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The resurrection, it's not a, an optional area where Christians can agree to disagree. It's absolutely foundational to, to the Christian life, to Christian doctrine. As we said a couple, a couple of weeks ago, if you reject the resurrection, you are functionally rejecting Christianity. You're rejecting Christ. Since this is such a big deal, my goal for us this morning is to, to answer one big question from the text, and that is, why should we believe in the resurrection of Christ? A couple of weeks ago, we focused in on the significance of the resurrection. Now we're going to focus in more on why should we believe in the resurrection. To see this in our passage, we're going to break it into two main points. We're going to look at the risen Christ appears and the risen Christ teaches. The passage breaks neatly into these two sections. So the risen Christ appears and teaches. For our first main point, let me remind you that our, our passage is at the end, the very end, of the very first Easter Sunday. So the most important day in human history. It comes right after Jesus' appearance to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, who rushed back late in the evening to, to Jerusalem to tell the apostles about their encounter with Jesus. And by the time they arrived, Peter had also seen the risen Christ appear to him as well. And so this would have been an exciting and emotional, a, a surreal moment as they're interacting. In verse 36, it picks up the account right there, right at that moment, saying, while they were still talking about this, about the resurrection appearances of Christ. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. If you're taking notes, I want you to underline Jesus' greeting, peace be with you. Because even though this was a, a common greeting during Jesus' day, this was far more than a simple hello. This was far more than a, a simple greeting. And we're gonna circle back to that later. But for now, it's enough to notice that Jesus spoke this greeting after spontaneously appearing in the room without knocking, without opening the door. In a parallel passage in John 20, he entered into a room that was locked. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is not in the room one moment, and then the next moment, he's just there. He's right, right in their midst. Verse 37 gives us their understandable reaction it says they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Jesus, as usual, he knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew their fears. He knew their doubts. He knew everything that was going on in their hearts. And he graciously drew near to them and gave them an opportunity to address their doubts, saying to them, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. 
touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Can you imagine what a moment this must have been? I mean, I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall here. This is one of those, those moments that when I'm in heaven, I want to see God's HD, multiple angle, like replay of this scene, like seeing each, each uh, apostle's reaction. This was Jesus' inner circle of men, men who had loved him deeply, men who had left everything to follow him as, follow him as the Messiah for years. But it's also the men who had shamefully deserted him in the garden and watched him die on the cross from a distance. So they knew that Jesus died. They probably stayed at a distance out of fear, but they knew Jesus died. But now they're seeing him, not just with their eyes, but they could also touch him. The word for touch here, it literally means to handle or to grasp. It's very tactile. So the idea is they could fall at Jesus's feet and touch his feet, feel the bones in them, worship at his feet. They could actually hug Jesus. They could, they could hug him. They most amazingly could put their hands, put their fingers in the glorified wounds of the, the places where Jesus had held the nail, where the nails had gone through his body as he was paying for their sins. Jesus has a glorified body, but there are still the, the glorified marks of where the wounds were. Their fear and doubt seconds earlier were eclipsed as the glorious reality of the resurrection began to sink into their souls. The phrase in verse 41, that they did not believe it because of joy, it literally reads, they disbelieved for joy. Isn't that an interesting expression? They disbelieved for joy. We have a, a similar expression in English when people say, I can't believe it. And they're talking about something that they do believe, right? It just seems too good to be true. I have a few examples for you. The first is from March Madness. I love NCAA basketball because in March Madness, there's always some upsets. And this year, there's one of the biggest of all time. There was a 16th seed, uh, FDU, who knocked off number one ranked Purdue. And so this is a picture, a normal picture of them celebrating afterwards, but check out this next one. I like this. <laughs> and then the next one, this next guy, his expression is so good. And it gets even better. Check this out. He's like, I, can't, I cannot believe it. I can't believe it. Now, as amazing as that was, I saw something recently far more amazing. You, you've probably all heard of this, but there was a, a woman, and she was born deaf, and through technology, she's now able to hear. And this is a picture of her hearing for the very first time in her life. <laughs> There's another picture afterwards. It says it kind of sinks in just the joy the incredible joy to hear for the very first time as an adult. Now, as incredible as those moments are, as you know, unbelievable as those would feel, you know, that's nothing compared to what's happening with Jesus and his disciples. See, the resurrection of Christ, it has the power to flood your soul, your soul with more joy than anything else in the world. When you understand the truth and the implications of the resurrection of Christ. See, when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about the resurrection, we're not talking about ancient religious ideas or traditions. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the most relevant truths 
in the whole universe. We're talking about the truths for which you were created for. You were created to know God. And God, he stepped into this universe and died in your place so that you could have a relationship with him. He rose to life to prove that. And when you connect with that, again, nothing has the power to bring more joy into your life than that. So if that's true, then why should we believe it? Why should we believe it? Why should we be confident that it's true? Well, the first thing from this passage is the eyewitness's certainty. The eyewitness's certainty. And we're going to go through this quick because we already alluded to it and spent some time on it two weeks ago. But you have to remember these men that are now amazed and just in, in stunned joy. These are the ones who basically laughed off the women earlier that day who had told them that they saw the resurrected Christ. The Jews, they didn't have a category for a resurrection before the end of the world. The Jewish people, they weren't primed to believe the resurrection. That They were inclined to disbelieve it. The, the disciples, they didn't anticipate it coming at all. And yet, what we see is that these men who were crushed by Jesus' death, who were cowards at Jesus' death, they ended up becoming so convinced that he came back to life, that they were willing to suffer, they were, they were willing to die, and they were willing to give the rest of their lives telling people that Jesus is God. He never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He died, and then he rose again, and we saw him. We saw him. We touched him. We held him. <laughs> the, the apostles, to, to the end of their life, they were writing about that. We're eyewitnesses. We, we touched him. We were there. And they had no reason to fabricate, fabricate this story, to make this up, humanly speaking. And on top of that, we mentioned that two weeks ago, but on, on top of that, it's powerful to realize that the risen Christ appeared to both believers and unbelievers. He didn't just change the life of the people who already had believed in him. He showed up to James. James was one of his brothers who did not believe in Christ. And he didn't believe until after Jesus' crucifixion and his appearance. So he appeared to his brother, and James became one of the leaders of the early church. Similar, probably most famous, is Saul of Tarsus. Saul was devoted to stamping out Christianity. He hated Christianity. He thought it was a perversion of the truth. And that the thing that changed his life, the thing he spent the rest of his life telling people, is that the risen Christ physically appeared to me. The ones, that, the ones I was trying to kill, I became one of them because I saw their Savior. I saw Christ. He really was, was risen from the dead. The eyewitness testimony and changed lives of those who would have known beyond a shadow of a doubt if Jesus was risen or not. It is such powerful proof for the resurrection. And we could get into far more of the details of it, far more of the, the evidence for that. But I want you to, to notice as powerful of evidence as that is, it's actually not the one that Luke emphasizes the most. It's not the one that he emphasizes the most. And in our second main point, that evidence is going to be one of the things that we observe. And so let's shift to our second main point now. The risen Christ teaches. Verses 44 through 47 again. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning 
at Jerusalem. There's so much going on here that we could easily do a three-week message series just on these couple of verses. In many ways, I wish that we could, but I'm not going to try and cram that all in this morning. Instead, I want you to notice three key observations from these verses. And I also want you to, to notice that this is the first post-resurrection teaching that Jesus gave to his apostles. That's interesting because he spent, he spent so much time teaching his apostles during his ministry. And this is the first time that he addresses them after he's been raised. First observation is that Christ is the key to understanding the scriptures. Christ is the key to understanding the scriptures. In verses 44 through 45, Jesus reminds his disciples of what he had already taught them before. It's like he's basically saying, guys, this is what I already said. This is, this is what I was trying to teach you, trying to get you to understand. And he said, I was trying to show you that everything written about me had to be fulfilled. Now, he mentioned specifically the law of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets were written about him. And this was the normal way that the Jews referred to the whole Old Testament. The law of Moses, it referenced the first five books of the Bible. The prophets included the historical books along with the, the major and minor prophets. And then Psalms referred not just to our Psalms, but to all of the other wisdom literature as well. And so this was the traditional way the Jewish people of Jesus' day categorized the whole Old Testament. And that means that Jesus clearly implies here, just as we saw last week, that the entire Old Testament is about him. The, the entire Old Testament it was written about him and anticipating his life and work. In fact, in verse 45, he shows these men who had grown up in a culture that revered and was saturated with the Old Testament scriptures, these men who had heard Jesus preach out of the scriptures for multiple years, it shows us that they did not understand them. They didn't understand the scriptures until they finally saw the full picture that they presented about Christ. So these men, they didn't and they could not understand the scriptures until they understood what they taught about Christ. This helps prove the, the point that Schreiner made last week, that God wants our faith to be first and foremost based on his unchanging word and only secondarily on our experiences. Our experiences are an unsustainable foundation for our faith because as anyone who's followed Christ for any amount of time knows, your feelings towards God, your experience of God, it can ebb and flow. There's sometimes where you feel so close to him and there's, there's other times that you feel more distant. Many people have spiritual highs where they get excited, they go to a conference, they have some event that happens, and they, they seem like they're so excited about God. And often, it's only a few weeks later that they totally reject any, any truth of Christianity. They don't claim to, to be trying to follow God at all. Experience is so unreliable because our experiences, we can forget about them, we can misinterpret them, we can seek them for, for selfish motives, you know, to prove how unreliable our experiences, our experiences are, just think about the Israelites in the Old Testament. You know, they, they got brought out of Egypt. They saw the 10 plagues. They, see, they saw the Red Sea part. <laughs> they walked through it. They saw it come down on Pharaoh. They had manna provided for them every single day, miraculously. You'd think if that was you, if you experienced that, you'd have strong faith for the rest of your life, wouldn't you? It'd be easy to trust God then wouldn't it? And yet these same people, they rebelled over and over again, complaining about God. 
The disciples, they proved this point as well. Think about all that they experienced. They saw Jesus feed thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and fish. They saw Jesus heal people born blind. He healed deaf people, not with technology. He just made them well, commanded them to be able to hear. Jesus, he, he went to people who had died and he brought them back to life. And his apostles, they had seen that. You'd think after witnessing that, that they would never doubt that Jesus was the Messiah again, but their hope was crushed when Jesus was, was crucified. Their confidence, it was crushed. Why was that? Well, despite their profound spiritual experiences, their view of Jesus was built on a fatally flawed understanding of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Their confidence was based on their experiences, not on the scriptures. And the same thing happens so often today. People are excited about Jesus temporarily, excited for what he can do in their life, but they don't understand who he is and what it will mean to follow them. And when things get difficult, when things get inconvenient, people are so quick to then reject it, to turn away. This reality that our faith must be based ultimately on scripture, it reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke 16. He says that if people don't believe Moses, if they don't believe the scriptures, they won't believe even if they see someone who has risen from the dead. Someone who died comes back to life, they witness it. If they don't believe what's already in scripture, they're not going to believe even then. If you don't understand who Jesus is and what he did, if you don't understand his identity and his work, then you will never be able to accurately interpret the Bible or find salvation in Christ. The idea, I hope you never forget, is that Christ is the key. I have a corny picture here. Christ is the key to unlock the treasures of God's word. It's the key to unlocking the, the treasures of God's word and salvation. This is why as a church, we're committed to Christ-centered expositional preaching. Now, that might sound like a mouthful, but expositional preaching, it means that the idea is that the primary focus of the message, it's not our stories, it's not to entertain, it's not to rile you up for anything that we kind of want you to be excited about as a church. What we want to do is work through the Bible, work through a book of the Bible, because it's God's word. And we want, as a church, to understand what is God saying to us and how does God's word apply? That's what we want. We want you to understand what is God saying. We want to interpret it right. This is, this is, we're dealing with God and what he has spoken to humanity. And the reason we're Christ-centered expositional preaching is because if you don't understand a passage and how it relates to Christ, you will misinterpret it you will misinterpret it. And this happens all the time. This happened in my life when I was younger. What happens if you don't understand how the scriptures connect to Christ is that you turn them into just moral lessons, ways to just try and be, become a better person, live a little bit better. And you totally mis misinterpret what they're saying. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says that the scriptures make us wise for salvation. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The scriptures make us wise for salvation. All of the scriptures give us a deeper understanding of who God is and the salvation that is available in Christ. If you don't understand who Jesus is and what he did, his identity and his work, you'll never be able to accurately interpret scripture or find salvation in Christ. Christ is the key. Jesus, he, he explicitly said this in John 5. He said, you pour over the scriptures 
because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus said this to the religious leaders who rejected him because he exposed their hypocrisy and threatened their power. Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, they had a different problem. They didn't reject that Jesus was the Messiah. They affirmed that. They believed that. They gave their lives for that. But as I mentioned earlier, the problem is that they had a fatally flawed view of the Messiah. They didn't understand who the Messiah needed to be. And that brings us to our second observation. Christ had to be crucified and rise from the dead. Christ had to be crucified and rise from the dead. Verse 46 He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. If you have your Bible, I hope hope you'll look at your Bible or look look at your study guide right now. See, in verse 44, Jesus said, everything written about me in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets must be fulfilled. He says, everything written down about me has to be fulfilled. Then in verse 45, it says, he began to open their mind to understand the scriptures. And then in verse 46, Jesus says, this is what is written. So now we're introduced to, the, to what Jesus taught them that opened up their minds, that changed them. So he zeroes in on, on the specific truths written in the Old Testament that they needed to have their minds opened, enlightened, so they could interpret God's word accurately. Does that make sense? Do you see that flow? And so Christ is the key to the scriptures. And then what he shows us here is the key truth about why he had to come. Christ had to come to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. Jesus had explicitly told this to his disciples multiple times on multiple different occasions. One example is Luke 9, 22. Jesus said this is to be crucified. He didn't just tell him he was going to die. He said, I'm going to get crucified as well. Then second is the word must. Almost each time he predicts his death and the resurrection, He says, this must happen, or this is necessary to happen. Have you ever wondered why that must is there? Why was it a must? Why was it a requirement? Why wasn't it just an option for Jesus? What Jesus is pointing out here is that it was a must because God had promised it. 24, 25, Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, oh, foolish stand, were the ones that were pointing to his sufferings. Even last week, Cleopas, on the way to Emmaus, he was describing what had happened in Israel. And it's so ironic. He says that we were hoping that he would redeem Israel. And then he describes how Jesus died. We were hoping he'd redeem Israel. And it's like, they're totally clueless. His death is what redeemed Israel. It's the thing that redeems everyone. And they they just missed it. They didn't see it. So what Jesus does What Jesus does, knowing that they missed it, knowing that they couldn't see it with their preconceived ideas, what Jesus does is he led his apostles on the world's best Old Testament Bible study ever. (laughs) This has been great. This would be better than any Bible study that we've ever been a part of. He takes them through the scriptures to see what they said about him. And when you read through the, the book of Acts after this, This became the foundation for the preaching as the apostles went out. They did tell people, we've seen Jesus risen from the dead. But that's not what they grounded their argument in. They said, we've seen it. But this is what the scriptures foretold. This is what the scriptures said would happen. That's what they grounded their preaching in. They grounded it in the Old Testament. 
Since Jesus makes such a big deal about the Old Testament prophecies of his death and resurrection, we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to walk through the most famous prophecy about Jesus' suffering and death and allusions to his resurrection, which is Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant of God. Beginning in verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. That is how the Jews viewed Jesus. This is part of why the religious leaders wanted Rome to crucify Jesus. You know, they said, we don't have the authority to kill Jesus. And that is, that's technically true. But in Acts, the religious leaders, they had no problem killing Christians. Why did they want the religious leaders to do it? I think part of it is because they knew what it said in the Old Testament. If anyone was hung on a tree, they were cursed. They knew if, if Jesus is crucified, how will people be able to believe he's the Messiah if he's cursed by God, cursed according to the Old Testament law? So we regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. That's why he was there. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. I love the true story about a man, I think this was about 20 years ago, in a major American city. He printed off just these few verses that we just read. He didn't have a reference on them. And what he did is he, he went to his workplace, and he had just a number of people just read those verses, and he asked them, who is this talking about, and when was it written? And everyone who read it, everyone said, well, it's obviously talking about Jesus, and it must have been written in the Gospels. And he said, yes and no. It is about Jesus, but it was written 700 years, over 700 years before Jesus' birth. And it's so accurate. It's so obvious. If you don't, if you don't have any, any background, you just read that and you think, well, obviously it's talking about Jesus. Yes, 700 years before he was born. Incredible, incredible. It goes on in Isaiah 53. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. Sheep back then were the most famous sacrifice for sins because of the Passover. And it's alluded that the, the suffering servant would be a sheep. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Notice that. He was cut off. He died. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, which is what would happen in crucifixion. You'd just get thrown into a mass grave. But... He was with a rich man at his death. He didn't go to that mass grave because Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, took Jesus, asked for his body, and put him in his own tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea, he was part of the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death. And he hadn't agreed because he knew that Jesus was innocent. And so he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Exactly accurate. Don't miss again. He was with a rich man at his death. At his death, the suffering servant died. There's a death here. Then in verses 10 through 12, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, here it's explicit, the suffering servant is a sin offering. He's a guilt offering for God's people. When you make him a guilt offering, wait a minute, 
he will see his seed. So he's going to die, but then he still sees his offspring somehow. He will prolong his days. God is going to prolong his days after his death. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. So through Jesus, God's going to accomplish his purposes. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Here we see justification by faith alone in the Old Testament. He's going to justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest boil because he willingly submitted to death. He died. He willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. This is what he quoted about why he would be crucified among criminals. And then it says, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. On the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they could do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It couldn't be more explicit. You just, you just see the, the account of Jesus' death, and you see the, the implication and the, the allusion to his resurrection so clearly. And there are, there are countless other passages in the Old Testament that allude to and require the Messiah to be crucified and to rise again. What I want you to understand is that it is not hard to demonstrate that the Old Testament promised Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, at least in hindsight. It's easy to do that. One question, though, is what about Jesus' specific statement that he would rise on the third day? Have you ever thought about that before? I used to read that and wonder, hmm, I don't remember that in the Old Testament. Kind of scratch my head and then move on. But I think that's important because the big idea of this passage is Jesus is trying to ground our conviction of these things in the scriptures. You know, skeptics who don't believe in the Bible, especially Jews, many Jews who reject the gospel, one of their reasons is because they'll say Jesus said that the Old Testament scriptures predicted that the Messiah would rise on the third day. We don't see that. So that Jesus must have been wrong. So does the Old Testament point ahead to that? Does it point to the third day? Well, there's two places. First in Hosea, this book, the book of Hosea, it was written to the nation of Israel, and Israel in it is compared to an adulterous wife. They've been unfaithful to God. They've rebelled against God. But in chapter 6, it says this, Come, let's return to the Lord, for he has torn us, and he will heal us. He has wounded us, and he will bind up our wounds. He will revive us after two days, and on the third day, he will raise us up so we can live in his presence. There's nothing in the, the history of Israel that corresponds to this prophecy unless you realize that Jesus is presented as the true Israel in the Gospels. So Jesus succeeds in all the places where the nation of Israel failed. So Jesus, he lay in the grave for two days, but then after two days, on the third day, he was raised. The prophecy says that he will raise us up, and that's because if you have faith in Christ, You'll be raised spiritually. You can be raised spiritually now through faith in Christ. And you'll be raised physically when Christ returns. So Hosea 6 is an illusion. It's pointing ahead to the third day. In addition to that is Jonah 1.17. That's where it says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, most of you probably read that and think, how, how would you ever think that that connects to the resurrection, right? And I get that. I don't think I would ever come to that conclusion unless you remember that the Old Testament was ultimately written by God. It was written through humans, but it was directed 
by God. And Jesus is God. And he's the ultimate interpreter of the Old Testament. And when Jesus was asked to give a sign to prove that he was a Messiah after already doing a miracle, this is what he told the crowds. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So Jesus, the ultimate expositor of the Old Testament, he explained that the the whole story about Jonah, this true story about Jonah, it was ultimately foreshadowing a far greater miracle than just being in a big fish for three days and three nights. It was pointing pointing ahead to how he would emerge from the grave on the third day. The scriptures point to how Jesus would rise on the third day. It's there. And there are dozens of other specific and general prophecies about the Messiah predicted in the Old Testament that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. So it's not just the the prophecies about his crucifixion and resurrection. There are many more, dozens and dozens of other prophecies. And so here's the key thought for you. The Old Testament doesn't just point ahead to the Messiah. It also proves that Jesus is the Messiah. The Old Testament prophecies, they don't just point ahead that a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming. They're actually specific enough to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, is the Messiah. An example to to help illustrate this or to try and illustrate this, imagine that there is a a random person on the other side of the world, okay? And we'll we'll tell that person, hey, John has a million dollars for you. Let's say hypothetically in this situation, if it it refers to me, you'll really have to use your imagination, but let's say it's actually true. John has a million dollars for you. How much is that information going to help our random friend? Not very much, right? There's, There's... tens of millions of people named John in the world. Now, what if you narrowed it it down a little bit and you said, John, who lives in the United States, he has a million dollars for you. Might help a little bit. There's over three million people named John in the United States. What if you said John Crane, who lives in Des Moines, Iowa? You can just say John, because obviously John Schreiner here, we get, you know, <laughs> a lot of Johns nearby. But what if you said John Crane? John Crane in Des Moines, Iowa. That'd be a lot better, wouldn't it? Well, I know for a fact there's another John Crane in Des Moines, because in college I was driving down Douglas Avenue by an art gallery, and on the marquee it said, come get autographs by John Crane. And it was spelled <laughs> the same way that I spelled my name. And so, of course, I had to go. <laughs> And I went, and I have a painting, a really cool painting, signed to John Crane from John Crane. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) There's another John Crane around. But what if we told our random friend, John Crane, who lives at 2420 East Glenwood Drive, Des Moines, Iowa, 50320, he has a million dollars for you. Now I'm the only person in the whole universe where that applies to. And that's what the Old Testament prophecies about Christ do. They don't just say a Messiah is coming. They're so specific that Jesus is the only person in the history of the world to who they all apply. Jesus is the Messiah. So why should we believe in the resurrection? It's because of the eyewitness certainty, but even more so, it's because of the Old Testament prophecy, the Old Testament reliability. Now, before we close... There's one more observation from this passage to mention quickly, and that is that Christ must be preached to all the nations. Verse 46 through 48, he told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer 
and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. If you're a believer, this is so exciting. This, this thought here, just as it was a divine must for Christ to be crucified and raised from the dead because God promised it, it's also a divine must that all the nations are going to hear about Christ. And that's because that was promised hundreds of times in the Old Testament as well. Recently, we looked at one of the best examples of that from Genesis chapter 12. So the nations, they will be reached with the gospel. And if you are a believer, you're part of God fulfilling those promises. While we should care about and have a heart for and support missionaries overseas going where the gospel has never been preached, don't ever forget that when you love and serve and share the gospel with your neighbors and coworkers and friends, you are part of fulfilling these promises. Des Moines, Iowa is one of the nations that Jesus promised would have the gospel proclaimed to it. Now, I also don't want you to miss what Jesus expects us as his followers to preach in verse 47. So as we try and point people to Christ, what does Jesus expect us to share? He says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. It's popular in many churches to preach about how Jesus can save you, how Jesus can give you purpose, how he can satisfy you, how he can fill your life with power, how he can give you a, a fresh start. It's popular to, to preach those things without ever mentioning sin or repentance. You know, people in churches like that, they might be excited for Jesus to save them from financial problems or health problems or relationship problems, but if they don't understand their sins, then they're never going to understand the real salvation that they need. All of us have sinned and rebelled against a holy God, and so we deserve his wrath. We deserve eternal punishment. Because of our sins, we, we do not have peace with God. The Bible doesn't say that non-Christians just are outside of the family of God. It says that they're enemies of God. We're naturally enemies of God because we rebel every day against his good and rightful authority over our lives. And this brings us back full circle to Jesus' incredible greeting when he said, peace be with you to his terrified and failed followers in verse 36. One commentator, he sums it up well with these words. He says, this was a wonderful saying when we consider the men to whom it was addressed. It was addressed to the 11 disciples who three days before had shamefully forsaken their master and fled. They had broken their promises. They'd forgotten their professions of readiness to die for their faith. They had been scattered, every man to his own, and left their master to die alone. One of them had even denied him three times. All of them had proved backsliders and cowards, and yet behold the return which their master makes to his disciples. Not a word of rebuke is spoken. Not a single sharp saying falls from his lips. Calmly and quietly he appears in their midst and begins by speaking of peace. Peace be unto you. He is far more willing to forgive than men are to be forgiven and far more ready to pardon than men are to be pardoned. Free, full, and undeserved forgiveness to the very uttermost is not the matter of man, but it is the manner of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Free and full forgiveness is what Jesus joyfully won for us on the cross. And I love John 16, this connection here, because the night before his crucifixion, Jesus had been preparing them for this moment. Just hours before his, his 
apostles would betray him. Listen to what Jesus told them. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Now, don't miss Jesus' logic here. He's saying, I want you guys to know that you're going to fail me. I want you to know that I already know that before it happens. And the reason I want you to know that before it happens is so that you can have peace in me. I'm so, so glad that Jesus, he, he wanted them to know that he knew they would fail. And the reason is because as Christians, it's often a lot easier to believe that Jesus has forgiven our pre-Christian sins than to believe that he's forgiven our sins that we've committed while trying to follow him, while, while trying to, to trust in him. But this is the foundation of our peace as believers. It's knowing that Jesus already knows all the ways that we're going to sin, all the ways that we're going to fail. And if you've trusted in him, if you put your faith in him to save you, then all of them have already been freely and fully forgiven. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've experienced that peace, if you've come to the peace that comes not from your own work, your own performance, but by trusting in Christ, then reading God's word, it goes from being a religious chore to being the most exciting thing you could do because in it, you have a chance for God to open up your mind, open up the scriptures to see his glory and to experience him in fresh ways. It's not a duty. It's an opportunity to grow closer to him. And as we experience that, as we experience that peace with God in Christ, it also increases our desire for others to come to know our Savior as well. Whether it's people on the other side of the world or it's people across the street from us. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word and how it is living and active. Lord, thank you, God, that you want to speak to us freshly every day through it. And I pray, God, that we would be a, a church filled with people who understand what we're dealing with in your word. That help us to be ones who tremble at your word, who love your word, and who are committed to seeking you in it, regardless of whether we're excited that day, whether we feel close to you or not. Help us to see that that's where you want to transform us, that that's where real transformation happens, is as we understand your word. God, I pray, Lord, that that you would use us as a, a church in greater and greater ways, not just in our city, but even beyond our city, Lord, to point people towards you and point to the, the full forgiveness of sins that's available in your name.